I don't know what I'm going to do without having a mic to fiddle with here. Nervous, <laughs> nervous habit. Um, let's pray. God, we're grateful to be here. We're thankful that you've gathered us. It's your presence that draws us. It's our hope. Each of us needs you so badly. Would you come and meet us at our place of need? In Christ's name, amen. Have you ever been given an amazing gift? Something that someone did for you that just really wowed you? Maybe the um, extravagance of it left you speechless. Maybe it was uh, something your friends or family did, a surprise trip. But whatever they did, you were just stunned by it. I was having a conversation recently with a friend, and he said that someone he mentored many years ago had called him up and invited him on this amazing trip, this resort out in the wilderness, and then uh, they will spend their days helicoptering to these exclusive lakes and then fishing. And um, it turned out this guy was given this gift by his wife, and she said, you can invite one person. And as generous as the gift was that my friend received, the grandeur of it, the kindness of it, the thing that he repeated was, he could have given it to anybody, and he asked me, right? It was the personal nature of it. That's what makes the gift really something that we think about and treasure. Jesus performed lots and lots of miracles. He healed many, many, many people. But many, many, many people didn't have that experience of, it was for me. He did it for me. And the reason that is important is because that's the difference between someone that's just a mere beneficiary and someone who is a disciple. That's the key difference between someone who is just sort of hanging out in the atmosphere of God and His grace and someone who is moved to follow Jesus. That's what a disciple is. This sense that it was for me. And that's what I want to look at this evening. We've been studying the miracles of Jesus, but tonight there's a little bit more on our response to it. Miracles and discipleship. And there's two ways I want to look at it. One is personal comprehension, and the other is personal commitment. Upon reading this, it's sort of an odd miracle, isn't it? It's brief. It seems kind of casual. Jesus goes into the house. Peter's mother-in-law is feeling sick. Jesus heals her. Why was it even included? Well, I think there were a few hidden things that we might see in it if we take the time. I thought of two things. One, we're reminded in this passage that Jesus cares about who we care about. It's not a small thing. Jesus cares about who you care about. Now, this woman was likely a widow. That's why she was living with Peter and his wife. 
part of the immediate family. And this probably wasn't a low-grade fever. Some theologians say it may have been that she had malaria. So she was sick in a bad way. Very sick. And Peter, whether he knew, and that's why he brought Jesus there, or he walked and was confronted with that, you know that they were burdened by this. You know that they cared about it. God has placed people in our lives. Family members, friends, neighbors into our lives. And He hasn't done that haphazardly. He has not only put you in those places, but He has commanded you to care for those people. And He cares about who you care about. It makes a big difference, I think, when it comes to hope. He knows the people that are near and dear to your heart. And that ought to give us courage to bring them before God. So I think that's the first thing we see in this sort of small, one-off miracle. But the other is the compassionate impulse of Jesus. An impulse, right, is that sudden, non-reflective action that you and I take. And impulses can tell you a lot about yourself. Uh, many times, it's not flattering, right? Whether you're driving, your impulse that happens. Uh, whether it's you're in a crowd and it's that Black Friday. I mean, just watch impulse. Just watch people shop, right? It can be a pretty humbling thing. By impulse, a mother will sacrifice her life for her child. By impulse, a first responder will run toward the danger instead of running away. But it's not just natural. Impulse can be trained, right? It can come from our knowledge of growing together. Jesus' impulse, He enters the house, He sees, and He heals. He enters, He sees, and He heals. Nobody requests that He does. No one acts. No one asks Him to act. He just acts. The impulse of the Lord is to remember us. In the book of Isaiah, we read, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Of course not. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. The impulse of Jesus Christ is compassion toward His people. So those are two things. And after Jesus does this, the home turns into a hospital. The Word gets out and many, many, many people come and are healed and He spends the rest of His hours just healing people. And you know from the accounts we see that that took time. Someone would come up and they would share their story and they would unload their burden on Jesus. And Jesus would hear and He would listen with compassion and then He would heal them. And then another person would come up and another person would come up and another person would come up. And we know from the Gospels this happened all the time. Many, 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 countless people experienced this. So why weren't there more disciples? If all those people experienced that, why weren't there more followers of Jesus? In fact, there were few compared to that many. And it's because there was a deeper understanding of what Jesus was doing that most of those folks completely missed. And in this passage, Matthew connects those dots for us. 
If you were wondering, well, what's the purpose of all these miracles other than just kindness? Did God have a deeper agenda? Matthew does us a service. He connects it with something by quoting from the prophet Isaiah. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, if we had time, we'd go to that context and you would see Isaiah's talking about a figure called the servant of Israel. The servant of Israel. And this is a servant that is said to, to come and offer himself to redeem his people. And the New Testament tells us this is Jesus Christ. It was a prophecy about Jesus Christ. He is that servant. And there's a couple connections that then Matthew brings our way to help us understand what Jesus was doing with these miracles and what He's doing in our lives. The first thing is the connection between disease, illness, and sin. I don't know if you uh, caught that, but Isaiah uses those concepts interchangeably. Has that ever puzzled you? The way the Bible will talk about disease and illness, and then it will talk about sin in the same breath. You find that in the New Testament as well. Jesus will hear a paralytic, and then he'll say, your sins are forgiven. And it raises lots of questions, right? Is that saying that if you have a sickness and an illness, it's because you've sinned? Not necessarily. Jesus makes that clear through the story of uh, the, the man who's born blind. And someone says, is he blind because he sinned? And Jesus says, no. It's to demonstrate the glory of God. You see it in the book of Job. But we also acknowledge that people can be sick because of sin, right? You can mistreat your body. People can suffer. And it's not just illness here. The word that he uses means just grief and suffering. Suffering can come into your life by sin. But that's not the main point that Matthew's trying to give us here. What is Matthew trying to say? It's this, that at the root of all the bad stuff that happens in this city and all the bad stuff that happens in your life personally, at the root of that is the affecting cause of sin in the world. It's the collateral damage, either directly or indirectly. The root of all the bad stuff occurred when we, men and women, turned away from God. And it opened a door to suffering, to pain. And so, at the root of all healing is spiritual healing. Now, I want you to hear me say that. The root of all healing is spiritual healing. Do you focus more on physical healing and emotional healing in your life than you do spiritual healing? I think many of us do. Some of it is our society really doesn't know what to do with spiritual healing. Um, you know, in, in modern Western culture, we're kind of at a loss. We segregate spiritual healing to this place of religion or, or health and wealth uh, or uh, self-help, spirituality. I was uh, reading a website that's sponsored by the American Academy of Family Physicians, and I appreciated their honesty in admitting this. They said, no one really knows for sure how spirituality is related to health. However, it seems the body, mind, and spirit are connected. The health of any one of these elements seems to affect the others. They're saying, that's as far as we got. Right? That's as far as we can get. I appreciate the honesty. 
One of the things you notice about the Bible, it doesn't have this segregated view of suffering. The word salvation is a very big word. The word shalom is a very big word. It means that God is going to move in and He's going to make everything better. He's going to one day heal bodies. He's going to heal minds. And most of all, He's going to heal spirits and souls, forgive sin. And for those that are followers of Christ, you know, you're looking forward to that day. Right? Either you yourself suffer or you know someone that suffers. And you're looking forward to that day when all that stuff is gone. And amen, it'll come. But you know something? We can experience substantial healing now. Because God is at work now. The kingdom isn't all the way here, but it's here. So, you know, we're to be realists, but we're to be optimists too. To believe that God would be at work when the elders are asked to pray for someone. And maybe they have a physical uh, illness. Maybe they have an emotional problem they're going through. I don't know what God's going to do, but I always know He's going to do something. He might heal the person physically. He might give them, more importantly, the emotional goods they need to keep on keeping on. He may do something spiritual. He may take that illness and actually use it in a way where they come to know Him like they've never known Him before. But we should have faith as we pray because of God's work. But there's a second thing that I think is even more motivating here. And that is the personal involvement of God in spiritual healing. What strikes you about Isaiah 53, and I'll, I'll read it to you, is the way that the pronouns in many ways are flipped. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. What you're hearing there in those little pronouns is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. The idea that the Messiah would come and He would take on the misery and suffering and the sin and He would give His life in exchange for the healing. The Son of God would bear the true guilt. He would be pierced with your moral failures. He would be crushed with your selfishness and my selfishness. And as you read those pronouns, you're being asked, you're being invited, you're being commanded to see Him. Do you see Him bearing your iniquities? Your transgressions? There's debate in church history about what was Jesus' cross made out of? Some people like to say a dogwood tree. I'm sure that's southerners that would say that. Right? Uh, beautiful tree, right? How is it made? Well, you know what Jesus' cross was made of? It was made of your transgressions. It was made of your misery. It was made of your sins. And a disciple is someone that has moved from just hearing that stuff, it's theology and knowledge, and they see it. They see Him there. Carrying them. Bearing them. Suffering for them. It's not easy to do that. It requires that I get humble. It requires that I get low. It requires that I actually begin to think about what I've done and where I'm at. But then I see Him 
It's the game changer. The Apostle Paul talked about this. I've been crucified with Christ. The life I live, I live by faith in Christ who loved me and gave Himself for me. What does discipleship look like? It looks like someone that won't let go of that. That they continue to ruminate on it. They continue to think about it on a regular basis. This is the reason why many, 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 many people came and they left. And a few came and were healed. Because they understood that. That was the point of the miracles. But let me move on to the last point here. What does that begin to look like? Personal commitment. The first thing is sacrifice. We now move, now try to, again, when you read this passage, it seems sort of random. But when you step back, it's not. You see, first of all, a healing that results in a model disciple. The mother-in-law, right? The mother-in-law is often the butt of so many jokes, right? Where here she is the model of discipleship. After she is healed, she immediately gets up and she begins to serve. And by the fact that her home turned into a hospital, she was probably serving for hours and hours and hours and hours. So you have that discipleship, someone that gets it. But then after that, there's a bunch of people. Obviously, Jesus is a pretty attractive guy to be around. He sounds like a pretty good leader to follow. He can do a lot of amazing stuff. And so people are starting to say, hey, I think I'd like to join up. I think I'd like to be a disciple. And this is where Jesus, in many ways, a puzzling way, makes it difficult for people to be disciples. You know, it's very tempting these days, especially in a town where people want numbers, right? Whether you're, whether you're running a campaign or whatever, you know, we don't want to turn people away by telling them the truth. But Jesus never makes it easy for people because he loves them enough to tell them the truth. And so someone comes up, a scribe, and this would have been not a small person, by standards in Israel, this is one of the religious leaders. It took him some guts to do this. I'm sure he was going to catch it from the Pharisees and the other religious leaders. He says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And whether Jesus had insight to his heart or not, Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Here's what he's basically saying. Jesus owned next to nothing. His calling, he, he, he took that vow upon himself, right? He lived next to nothing. He, he was homeless. He depended on the hospitality of other people. But so were his disciples. These were the people that were called to follow Jesus. And so, Jesus says to this scribe, are you willing to sacrifice your comfort to be my disciple? Are you willing to sacrifice your comfort to be my disciple. Imagine an athlete who uh, is injured and the team doc comes and heals him or her and then after they're healed they say, you know something, I'm going to go up in the stands and get some popcorn and enjoy the game. Right? Well, that's absurd. That would never happen. Why? Because he is healed to play. A soldier is healed to serve. Disciples are healed to be disciples to sacrifice, and experience the lack of comfort. Uh, you know, I am a comfort-driven person. I, I will regularly say that, you know, I'm very much like a hobbit. I, I, you know, I like my place. 
I've, you've, if you've been here long enough, you've heard me go on about, you know, I like rocking chairs, I've got my patio. You know, people say, well, what did you do this weekend? And I'm like, well, I was, I was just in that little place I like, that place of comfort. And, um, you know, if the thermostat's off one degree, I know it. <laughs> I know it. You know, I get up and I'm like, there it is. It's at 71 instead of 70. That's why I'm up. That's why I can't sleep. You know, driven by comfort. And for, you know, maybe you, it's the best seat or the front seat in the car. Um, maybe it's, you got to have a single room when you travel. Maybe it's, you got to be the first in line to get the food. Maybe it's your schedule. Maybe if you get the little bittiest cold or discomfort, you're just a bear to be around. You know, we are comfort driven people. Comfort driven people. And so a disciple is doing this journey where we're learning to trust in the Lord enough where we discomfort ourselves intentionally. That's the thing, you know, if you only wait to be discomforted by people, God's going to probably be interrupting your life all the time, right? But a disciple actually takes it on themselves to discomfort themselves in the front end. The Apostle Paul had said, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What is one way that the sacrifice of the Son of God has made you discomfort yourself? Think about that. What is one, one way the gospel, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, has led you to discomfort yourself? And I'm asking you to answer that. Not just to say, oh, that's an interesting question. I'd like to leave tonight and go, is there one way that that's happened? Uh, let's let God be concerned about our comfort. Let us be concerned about our giving ourselves to Him. That's what we're looking at. But the last thing here is the priority. Another disciple comes up and says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. You know... How do you explain that, right? <laughs> if anywhere you're supposed to be really sensitive, it's right, right there. And Jesus kind of just says that. And we're like, man, this guy is just harsh. Well, again, if you know a little bit of the context, you realize, well, not. Well, first of all, um, in Israel, burial occurred within hours. And so if his father really would have died, he wouldn't even been out there. And the funeral would have been over quickly. Essentially, what the man is saying is, listen, I know one day down the road my parents are going to die. And my greatest loyalty is to them. So once they die, then I'll come follow you. And Jesus sees that and goes, well, no, it sounds like you're spiritually dead. So why don't you go bury other spiritually dead people instead of follow me? And it sort of gets us, I, I would call this uh, afterward discipleship. You know, I'll do it after I get done with something. Maybe it's, you know, God, after I achieve this milestone in my career or my education, that's when I'm going to really fully give myself to you. Or um, maybe it's God, after I reach this standard of living, uh, then I'm going to really start to tithe. You know, I have this weird fantasy in my head where I think, you know, God, okay, I'm tithing this much, but if you made me rich... I would be so generous, right? You know, and it's such a foolish thought, right? Because it doesn't come out of generosity, it comes out of sacrifice. It comes out of faith 
in the Lord. And so, you know, you'll never, a friend of mine likes to say, you'll never be what you're not becoming. And so right now, this disciple is being asked, no, now begin to reprioritize. And for those of you that are from cultures and families where, you know, allegiance, right, to parents is a very, very important thing. If you, you know, if you're just sort of independent Westerner that grew up in a family where like, yeah, yeah, I'll think about mom and dad every now and then. You're like, ah, that's easy. I ignore my parents all the time, right? <laughs> but for those of you that, you know, feel that responsibility, you go, you know, that's hard. It's really hard to know how to work that out. How do I prioritize Jesus as I do this? And so the question is, you know, where does it show up in your real life? If you've ever done one of these time logs before, right? If you've ever been through goals and priorities, you know there's a bunch of little things they have you do. One is a time log where you mark everything that you do in 15 or 30 minute increments. Our calendars will, will, will reveal to us priorities. What do you think about when you first get up? What do you think about when you go to bed at night? What do you think about when you're depressed? Right? There are ways you and I can see what is it that has my priorities. And here's the key to turn it all the way back around. The answer here just isn't willpower. Willpower won't get you there. The reason Matthew gives us that verse from Isaiah, he's basically saying to us, it's the gospel that gets you there. It's seeing the sacrifice of the Messiah for you that gets you there. That's the only thing that will yield that kind of commitment. You'll burn out if you try to do it any other way. You'll get cynical. You'll be great for like a month and then you'll go down the tubes. The only way you can sustain it, a long, slow obedience in the same direction, is drinking in the gospel and seeing that Messiah loving and dying for you. And as we move into a new space, you know, there's kind of a rise and serve. God has given us a gift here. And the gift, the appropriate response to this gift is, will I follow him? Will I be a disciple? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenges that you put before us. Thank you for the miracle of salvation. In Christ's name, amen.